King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officers, officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial office officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. Your Majesty, they are neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you don't, do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you don't, not, do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, 
Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was their hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubbles, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Good morning. First of all, I'd like to present the Oscar of the best performance of an ancient Mesopotamian king to Steve Cox. He did an amazing job. But I think most of the credit probably should go to Trin for um, getting her brothers and her father to act in such a way. I think they did a great job. Lockie looked a bit like a, a hobbit with his cloak, but I think it was amazing. I, I don't know how to follow that up, actually. Put that in your mind as you're listening to this, because that's phenomenal. Uh, my name's Simon. I am not one of the pastors here at WEC. I am just someone that listens in the congregation each week. But um, thank you so much to Tim and to Mike for giving me this opportunity. Um, it's great to be able to share in God's word together. Um, this is a story that no doubt everybody's seen on felt boards in Sunday school back in the 80s and 90s, but it's so much more than just a kid's story. Like This is a story of compromises. This is a story of idolatry, and um, yeah, it's, it's going to be great. I, I am married with two beautiful children. Uh, my wife, Stacey, and I have been married for 12 years, and we originally met at Bible school. Um, she's American, I'm Australian, and we have friends all over the world. And some of our friends live in Canada. And we were in California, where she is from once, and we were going to go visit our friends in Canada. To get to Canada from California, you first have to go through Oregon, then you have to pass through Washington, and then you have to go over the Canadian border. The thing about America is that when you're in one state and you go to another state, things start to change. Okay, the weather changes, the people change, some slight laws. But there's signs along the highway saying, you are almost in Oregon. Come visit Oregon. You're going to love it. And then when you get over the state border, it says, welcome to Oregon. We're so glad you're here. The road signs start to change. They start to change in colour. They start to change in distances. And you know, this is not like the state that I just came from. The people are the same. They're still my countrymen, countrywomen. But little things start to change. 
And we found this out when we went to fill up our car with petrol or gas, as they call it over there. Pulled up to the, uh, the petrol station. I got out of the car, had a nice stretch, pulled the pump up and went to put it in the car. And the man in the shop ran to my wait, 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 what do you think you're doing? You are not allowed to do that. Get back in your car. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just filling up my car with petrol here. And he said, no, 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 no. You must have come from California. Here in Oregon, you are not allowed to pump your own gas. Someone must come out of the shop and do it for you. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm not even Californian. I'm Australian. And he's like, okay, I'll let you off the hook this time. 15-year-old boy came out, filled up our car with gas. And I even had to pay him. I couldn't even go into the shop. You see, the laws from California to Oregon changed. And then when you get back into Washington, you're sitting in your car waiting for someone to come out and pump your gas for you. But the laws have changed back and you're actually allowed to get out of the car and pump your gas. It's very confusing. But the people were the same. They were all considered American. Yet when you pass from state to state, things changed. Christianity is like this. We are one big, massive country of probably more than 50 states. We've got the Republic of Baptists. We've got Anglican Ireland. We've got Presbyterian area, whatever. We've got lots of little states within Christianity. And we can see the signs as we're coming towards them. Welcome to Baptist land. We baptise as adults. You are now leaving... Um, baptizing as children, okay? These are state border issues. We can freely come within states, but we recognize each other as countrymen and countrywomen. The problem comes when you get to the international border. Coming from America into Canada, big international border, okay? There's maple leaves everywhere. You are now leaving America. God bless you as you go into the great white north type thing. And you have to get your passport out. You have to justify why you're coming into Canada. You know you are in a different country. And when you get there, the language is different. The money is different. The laws are expressly different. And you know you are no longer in the country that you have just left. Christianity is also like this. We have major international borders. We know we are from the country of Christians because of these closed-handed issues that we have. The things that make us believers in Jesus we've got the Trinity Father Son Holy Spirit that's us anything but that you're in a different country the Bible is the word of God closed-handed issue not compromising on that Jesus is the son of God he died and was resurrected and he is the only way to heaven that's something that makes us the country of Christians we can go into other states we can have arguments about whether we have drums in church or not but we can always gather around the cross of christ and know that we are christians with those closed-handed issues daniel and his mates in chapter one and two they came across a similar situation they were presented with opportunities do i compromise that do i compromise that open and closed-handed issues they were willing to have their names changed. They were willing to speak a new language. They were willing to change their clothes. They were willing to have new jobs. They were willing, probably not willing, but they did live in a new country and be taken away from their original homes. 
but they would not compromise God's law that was given to them. This is where they drew the line. This is where they said, no, I will not compromise that. You see, in Leviticus 17, 10 to 14, you are not, God commanded the Jewish people, you can't eat pigs and you can't eat horses. I've got a problem with one of those animals. I personally do not eat one of those, but I do love bacon. But pig and horse were Babylonian delicacies at the time. And when King Nebuchadnezzar would have served his food to them, there would have been pig and horse, like a horse meat pie or something, as disgusting as it sounds. And the boys were like, no, this is where we draw the line. I will not compromise. God has commanded me that I don't do that and I'm going to stand firm and I'm going to become a vegetarian. And they did. They weren't willing to compromise it. You see, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, they understood what would and wouldn't compromise their faith and their relationship with God. James 4, 17 says, For whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, for them it is sin. In this story that Jody read for us, we're presented with five men. One, the first man, he is so enamoured with himself that he demands all the power, all the glory, and all legacy be given to him no matter what the price. Then we're presented with the three young men who refuse to give that first man what he wants. And they end up compromising their lives. But the last man in this narrative, he's the one that deserves all the glory, all the power, and all the eternal legacies. Yet he gives it all up to walk into the jaws of death because we are willing, were willing to compromise our relationship with him. So the first man, no surprises, King Nebuchadnezzar. He has just found a faith in God. He's seen what God can do. He said, I worship him. But the foundation of his faith is extremely shallow. He is going to give up three things to compromise his faith for God. The first thing is that he's going to try and steal God's glory and glorify himself. He's going to try and steal God's power and show the power for himself. And the third thing is he's going to try and steal God's legacy and keep that legacy for himself. King Nebuchadnezzar had done something where he had reordered his hierarchy of worship. He has placed his own priorities about God, above God, sorry. This in definition is called idolatry. Now a very famous piper, Andy Piper, not John Piper. He, I, I promised I would quote him because he said this a Bible study and I think it's amazing. He says, when we place our worship on anything but God, when we get that out of order, it therefore becomes an idol. Take a look at 3, 4 to 6. You can see that King Nebuchadnezzar is compromising his new faith by serving these idols of glory, power, 
and an eternal legacy. He could have said to God, glory, power to you, Lord. Whatever happens to my kingdom, it's in your hands. But no, he's going to force people to worship him and he's going to see God's prophecy and revelation as an opportunity to serve his idols. So the first one is Nebuchadnezzar's glory versus God's glory in three to, uh, 1 to 4. Nebuchadnezzar does what Solomon describes in Proverbs as a dog returning to its own vomit. Nebuchadnezzar has had a repentance. He has turned his life around, but like a dog returning to its own vomit, he has seen an opportunity to feed his idols. God has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel that you are the golden head on this statue, a head of a finite kingdom. One day someone's insuperior to you, so a silver kingdom is going to come and overthrow you. I have a feeling that Nebuchadnezzar probably switched off as soon as he heard, you are the golden head. He probably didn't even hear the rest. He's like, what? I'm the golden head? Awesome. Golden head me. He sees an opportunity to steal glory from God here by satiating his internal idols, by creating a golden idol for the people to worship. So in his dream, he had this idol of a gold head, silver body, bronze legs, clay and iron feet. Nebuchadnezzar thinks to himself, I'm just the head, there's a whole other body. Maybe if I create... A statue that's all gold. Maybe I can just twist God's word a little bit. And then my kingdom's going to be the one that lasts forever. There's not going to be any silver or bronze or iron. And what's more, he's going to force God's people into worshipping this thing. He's going to steal that glory from God for himself. Isn't Nebuchadnezzar a terrible person? Yet I think this is probably the person in this story that I can relate to the most. We are the Nebuchadnezzar in this story. We compromise our faith so often in this way. We want the glory for ourselves. We forget who and where our blessings come from. We fail to acknowledge God that we are where we are because he has placed us there. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to capture Israel. It's not anything that Nebuchadnezzar did. God allowed him to. It says in the previous two chapters, it was God who deserves the glory in that, not Nebuchadnezzar. Yet we often forget who gave us these blessings. We can make concessions on why we deserve credit for our blessings. You know, maybe I didn't do 100% of the work, but I still did, you know, 10 to 15%. Surely I should get some credit. I'm willing to say God did most of the legwork, but me, what about me? I did a little bit of that. I mean, I let him use me in that way after he beat me over the head and, and put me into that situation. But we also set up our own little golden statues to show God that we are the exceptions to the rule of his judgment. We can pretend to have it all together. Might not be a physical golden statue, but you might, we 
might present ourselves in such a way as, look how awesome I am. I've got a big house, I've got a large car, I've got money, I've done amazing mission trips. Look at me, bow down and worship me. Tell me how good I am. These are the compromises that we are willing to make to steal the glory away from God. Here's the truth, though. We were made to worship, not to be worshipped. We were made to give glory, not to be glorified. When our worship goes anywhere but God, it's idolatry and a sin. That includes our spouses, that includes our friends, our kids, our jobs. To the world, it might look good that we love our family more than anything in this world. But to a Christian, it can become idolatry. Jesus says it a few times in his ministries. If anybody loves anybody other than me, if you, in, in comparison, if you don't hate them more than me, it's idolatry. There's our power versus God's power. Nebuchadnezzar tries to take power away from God. Nine times in this chapter, five alone in one to seven. You could probably look at them. They, they jump out at the page. It says that it was Nebuchadnezzar himself who set up the golden image. Now, I'm willing to wager he didn't even touch that thing. Yet it says he's the one who built it. He's the one who set it up. He's the one that cleared the plains of Dura. He himself set it up. I don't think he probably even knew which end of the hammer to use. Yet he's the one that wants the power to say it's me who set this whole thing up. He's abused the power that God has given him, earthly power, to show how powerful he is. He said, design me a statue. Find me the gold. There's probably even gold stolen from Jerusalem in this statue. And he's forced people to worship. And if they don't, I want to know about it because I will kill them. He worships and idolizes his own power that he has felt threatened by God's revelation. That it's going to end. You will not have power forever. Take a look at what he does in 15 and 19. Filled with fury, a burning anger. No one is ever more aggressive, defensive, selfish, full of justification and malice than when someone challenges their idols. I can speak from experience on this. It might be a minor thing. Challenge my idols and I become irate because that's my God, that's what I choose to falsely worship. And it often becomes a sign. Why am I so overreacting to this? This must be something that I am replacing God with in my life. And it's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar has done. And we do the same thing. We assume that we know better. We justify our striving for power based on religious reasons. It's good for me to want to be someone prominent in the church or in my job or in my friend's circle. That way I can have more influence. If I get more power, that enables me to do better things out in the world. We fall for Satan's lie that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? 
Is it such a bad thing that you want to be awesome? It's not bad that you want the power that should be God's. And the truth of the fact is we are God's children. We are all like sheep gone astray. All the good things that we have come from God. We're but a breath on the wind. But we were created by an all-powerful, loving, jealous God who rightfully deserves and commands our worship and glory. And it's not the other way around. And then the final kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar tries to steal from God is the one of legacy. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 was losing sleep over the fact that he was shown that his kingdom was going to end. In verse 2, he gathers a weird bunch of men. But these were the political leaders. He gathers them and he wants it to be politically and spiritually ratified that his kingdom, his legacy is going to be forever. Anybody been to North Korea lately? It's probably COVID thing, I'm guessing. But you can't go to North Korea without the tour bus taking you to these big statues of the other Kims and you have to bow down and worship them. You're not allowed in the country unless you do. They've set up this eternal legacy. The, the two dead, the, the father and the grandfather, are still set up as the eternal leaders. They have forced this legacy on their country that they will last forever. Nebuchadnezzar's legacy was going to be his power in his glory forever. And we do this as well. We don't get away with this one. We want to be remembered. We want our contributions to society to be remembered. Now, I forgot I was going to be preaching in this hall, so ignore the boards up on the side, but we put our names on plaques. And Tim's is on both sides, by the way, so his names are up on plaques. But... We put our names on things and we want to be remembered. I want someone to know that I was here on this day and I did that thing. And if it's not on plaques, it's on social media. Look at this thing that I did. Please like it. Please share it. Give me those little bits of worship to show that I have done something to contribute to society. I want to set up my legacy. And Facebook knows this so well. Here's what you were doing three years ago. That's right. How cool am I? I'm going to share that again and see if I can get another 15 likes for it. We want this legacy to be ours and not God's. And the truth is, we are going to spend eternity in one of two places acknowledging God's eternal legacy. You're either going to be with your Christian brothers and sisters Worshipping him, saying, hallelujah is the king of kings. Or you're going to be in a not so great place, watching on thinking, how did I miss that? That's the truth of it. And then we come to the next three men. Now I want to take a quick survey. 
Do you want to go with Abednego or do you want to go with Abednego? Hand up for Abednego. Hand up for Abednego. Abednego, I think, is the right way. We will go with this. Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. In, ver- in chapter 2, sorry, we see that they have been promoted. They are buff vegetarians. Okay, bit of an oxymoron. Buff vegetarians, they're provincial leaders. Think state premier. They have great influence. They have great standing within their community. They were willing to be flexible politically, but they were not willing to be compromised religiously. And they made no excuses for it. They followed God's word to the letter. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego could have easily justified, compromised within their own conscience and still get a good night's sleep by bowing down to the idol. And they aren't too far from the compromises that we make here in today. I put a list together of things that I would have done in this situation and still felt that I have justified bowing down to this golden statue. Tim said I had to get the list down. I had, you know, 15 to 20. I said, can I share six? He said, go with one. (laughs) But there's so many excuses that you can make to get away with this. And I think the number one top excuse that I would have used to think that I could get away with bowing down to this statue is that I can do it physically without compromising myself spiritually. So what it would have looked like, I can bow down with everybody else and I can pretend to worship the statue, but really in my heart I'm saying, God, I'm just, I'm just doing this for appearances so I don't get killed, so I don't get thrown into the fire. Anybody else with me on that? Or is it just me? Yeah. We do this so often. The outward appearance is more important to us than the inward appearance. If I just appear to go along with what everybody else is doing, I don't lose face. I don't lose friends, I don't lose family, I can make a compromise to get away with these things and at the end of the day, I'm still good with God because inwardly I was worshipping him that whole time. Maybe going to a party, it's things that are happening that are not good. I can be a part of that, I'm not, I could not necessarily participate but I'm not going to call it out either. I can be there, I can be in the world but not of the world type thing. That's a compromise. They could have hidden when the music played, you know, stick their heads in the sand. I can stand, I can go into a cupboard, I can stand without lying down. That's a technicality, I could probably get away with that one. I could probably say, well, worship is just an internal thing. I like to worship internally. I don't like singing in church. I don't like putting my hands up or closing my eyes. I choose to worship internally. It's not an external thing. God knows what's going on in my heart. These are justifications and compromises that we make so often, and yet we have this story in the Bible because these three guys did not compromise. You imagine if there's a golden statue up on Willens Hill, they start playing Don't Stop Believing by Journey <laughs> over the loudspeakers with bagpipes. 
I noticed if you've got the ESV, it says they had bagpipes. Imagine that plane. Everybody in Wagga stops what they're doing, bows down, except for three people. That's more powerful than if all the Christians in Wagga would just bow down and worship in their hearts. We've got men and women in the not-so-distant past that have done exactly this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Richard Wormbrand during World War II would not compromise. Richard Wormbrand, even when he was in jail, would not physically compromise his faith. Corrie ten Boom, Martin Luther, these are people who we know about that just did not make any compromise. The word of God says this, I'll do it to a T. Not going to worship the Nazis or the communists or anything. I'm not going to play along with that. I'm going to make a stand and I'm going to fight against it. And that's such a powerful message than if they had just laid down. And then we've got the final man in this story. There's a bit of contention if he was physically present. There's four people in the furnace, one like the Son of God. Is, isn't Jesus, not going to split hairs here, but God was present. God was with these three men in that furnace. Jesus is the final man in this story. He was tempted so many times to not only compromise his faith, but he was presented with so many opportunities to use his divine power to exhibit who he truly was. With a snap of his fingers, anybody could have been turned to dust. Like you could almost picture him when he's talking to the disciples, he's like, how much longer do I have to hang out with you guys? He could have just gone. Pharisees, satraps. The Romans. So many opportunities he could have made to compromise his mission and his faith. Yet this man, fully God, fully human, he knew what it meant to be obedient, to follow God. He knew what the cost of compromise, our compromise, was because he was that exact price that he paid for all our compromises that we make, yesterday, today, tomorrow. This might come as a surprise, but we're going to stuff up. You probably already have this morning. I've stuffed up this morning. If you haven't yet, still time. Okay, you still got 12 hours to go. Paul promises all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Think of it like a high jump. If I set the bar at two metres, Cox boys might be able to make it. A lot of us would just fall flat on the mat. But even if we missed it by one centimetre, you're out, you don't make it. And that's the problem with sin. You could sin once, you still don't get to spend eternity with God. You sin constantly. You still don't get to spend eternity with God. But we have a God who has suffered 
on our behalf and he has served and been obedient. And we as his children are required to give him our full devotion. When we walk through the furnaces of our faith, Spurgeon says we are to say, it is not mine to ask what others would do. It's not mine to shape my course by them. It's not mine to inquire what will bring the most profit and what would bring me the most honour. It's mine to look upon thee, my God, and ask, what would you have me do? And I would do it at all costs. And we so perfectly hear this summed up when Jesus is praying in private to his father. He's begging, Dad, is there some other way? Can we compromise on this? Do I have to? And then at the end he says, but not my will. Yours be done. And there's echoes of this with um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Take a look in verse 17, 18. It's probably the, the apex of this whole chapter. So perfectly summed up. Our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, what the boys are saying here is that God can deliver us. God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, well, you see, when the Lord can deliver us, whatever we face, we know that God has the power to intervene. And we know he has the power to redeem and deliver all brokenness that we experience. And the Lord will deliver us. God is not just all-powerful, but he's also very personal. And he will deliver us. He is heavily invested in us. One way or another, in this life or the next, we will be delivered from suffering, from sin, and from death. But if we aren't delivered now, may our hearts and our words echo what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to King Nebuchadnezzar. We can trust that God is a loving father. And if we aren't delivered right now from the pressures of compromise, then obviously he knows something that we don't. And that one day, once and for all, all his children will be delivered from death, sin and suffering. Now, if you are a Bible-believing, God-fearing Sinner saved by grace. I want you to know that God saved Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the death in the furnace. They didn't die that day. They were rescued. 
But the fifth man in that story, Jesus, wasn't rescued. See, God has saved us through the suffering of Christ in the furnace. And it was his death that was our deliverance. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they walked out of there that day. Jesus didn't get down from the cross. He died. And three days later, he was resurrected. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, that's awesome. Welcome. We love you. Welcome to WEC. But someone's going to have to pay for your sin. You have sinned. You fall short of the glory of God. There's nothing you can humanly do to be in a right relationship with God. But there's good news. The offer to share in Christ's victory over sin and death is free for you to take up right now. So that you don't have to walk into that furnace and hope that you come out again, Christ has done that for you. And it's such a great opportunity. You can't leave today without making a decision. You have to worship something. If it's God, amen. If it's not, it's an idol. Like the famous Piper said, if you put something above God, it's idolatry. Make that decision today. If Christ is yours, sing hallelujah. If he's not, you, got, you have to make a decision about that. Please talk to anybody in this church that you see holding a Bible. Okay, they'll be able to tell you about the awesomeness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you know how wicked and evil we are. That you know that there is nothing that we can do apart from you. That all blessings and good gifts come from you. And therefore, all power and glory and legacy belong to you. As your children, we pray that you would guide us by your grace to live out lives like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, where we will not compromise on these closed-handed issues, that we will not be a, compromise the true identity of Jesus the King. And we pray that as we go out to our city of Wagga, that we will be these shining lights. That um, when people look out on the city of Wagga, we will be the three standing up, making a difference for your kingdom. Amen.